Happy New Year, 2018, and I really want to thank those of you who, especially toward the end of last year, uh, shared with me because every bug in Northern Virginia collected on me this past week, and so I'm glad to have gotten them all out of the way. I had this thing and the coughing thing, still do, so I'm apologizing in advance if there's a coughing jag. I'm not dying. Just bear with me. Also had the stomach bug, which, not pretty, we won't talk about the details, but we're here, and yay, you might not want to shake my hand or hug me this morning, unless I need propping up. Thanks so much for coming and taking this time to spend with us. Those of you who are here for the first time, welcome, it's really, really good to have you. We're starting a new series of conversations that I think are going to be great for us. It's the new year, and even if you're not the kind of person who likes resolutions, this is the time of year where you can't help yourself. And I've been praying that we would be making some resolutions in a, in a particular direction, and I'm going to commend that to us this morning. But before we jump in, let me kick us off with prayer. Uh, Father, thank you so much for convening this meeting, for gathering us, and we don't believe that any of us are here by accident. We are here, each one of us, by your design. So part of what we want to do in the next few minutes, Lord, is to be open to why you have issued this invitation to us all together and to each of us individually and to, to us as families. We really want to hear from you. Father, I pray for those that have just particular emotional burdens that they're carrying this morning because of relationship difficulty and tension. And it is really hard to hear outside of, that makes so much noise in our hearts and our heads, it's just hard, it's hard to hear. Father, we lean into you this morning and pray that you would speak. And we pray for those who are struggling physically. God, we know that you have the power to set our bodies right. And... We make ourselves available to you this morning. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning and, and don't really have a connection with you. They're here out of habit or they're here because they're trying to honor their family or their, their husband or their wife or their kids. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak. You have done that for me, and so I pray that you would do that today for them. Hear us. And we bring all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Okay, Mary Oliver is a Pulitzer Prize winning poet who offered this charge in one of her poems. She said, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So the first Sunday of the New Year is a perfect time for us to ask that, isn't it? We're going to start a new series of conversations, as I said. We're going to talk about spiritual growth. So how does it happen? What is it? What is spiritual growth? And why is it important? Now, for some of you, the idea of spiritual growth is an old habit, and I pray that these first couple of months together in this year will be a refreshing time for you. For others of you, the idea of spiritual growth is a brand new category. And I pray that you'll see how critically important this is, and, and I pray that you will begin to think about and to pursue this as a category in your life, the idea of spiritual growth. 
we're going to go through a little book in the New Testament, a letter from the Apostle Paul, and it's called Philippians. This is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to a group of Christians in the ancient city of Philippi. And we're going to look at Philippians because Philippians is positive and it's encouraging and it's a charge to spiritual growth. So this will give us a great launching pad for talking about spiritual growth. How does it happen? What is it? Why it's important? But we're going to begin this morning, in this first Sunday of the new year, we're going to begin where Philippians gets set up. So the book of Acts in the New Testament is, over half of it, is the adventures of the Apostle Paul and how he went from city to city and what happened. And we're going to look this morning at the incident when he went to the city of Philippi to actually start the church that he would later write the letter of Philippians 2. So we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 16. And as we look at Acts chapter 16... As we go through this this morning, I'm just going to make five semi-unrelated observations, and I'm hoping that these will be walking away talking points for us, five things that fall out of this passage about the Apostle Paul, which ultimately, of course, have kind of application to our lives as well if we allow them to be massaged into our hearts. And I'm going to give you these five observations up front before we even look at the passage. So the five observations that we're going to look at this morning are number one. Paul's life was directed by God alone. Second observation, Paul was undeterred by circumstances. He was not set off course. He was not uh, undone. He was undeterred by, by circumstances. Third, Paul's message, and we're going to refer to Paul's message at various times over the next several weeks as God's story or God's offer of love. We're also going to call it the gospel which is the New Testament phraseology. It means literally the good news, the story of how God approached us. So Paul's message speaks of a personal connection to God, and it requires of its hearers that they make a personal decision about that connection. That's an important one, because that really is the beginning of spiritual growth. The fourth observation we're going to make is that Paul sees fantastic supernatural things happen around his message. But these are not the point. The message is always the point. I'm going to repeat this in a second, but we don't hear a lot about this fourth one in the book of Philippians. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but you've got to observe it because if you're one of those people who struggles with the supernatural, the New Testament is going to be uncomfortable for you because it's everywhere. And it is the expectation of the New Testament that this kind of thing will be happening in and around our lives as well on rare occasions. Finally, fifth, Paul does not exert. He does not demand his own rights except in the service of the gospel. That's an important one for those of us who are Northern Virginians. So we're going to look this morning at Acts chapter 16, and we're going to start with verse 6. So Acts 16, verse 6. And follow along with me if you would. I'll read out loud. You follow with me. I'd love for you to look in a Bible. If you have a Bible, if you don't, it will be on the screen. Just for the first part of it, let's go old school. Let's stand out of reverence for God's word. So Acts 16, let me read verses 6 through 10 first, and then I want to point a couple of things out to you. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. 
When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. I know you don't know all these places, but I'm going to show them to you in just a second. This is kind of Asia Minor. This is generally in the area of modern-day Turkey. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. Just a little note there. Did you notice that we? That doesn't happen throughout the book of Acts. Most scholars believe, evidently, that Luke wrote the book of Acts. The guy who wrote one of the biographies, the biography of Luke, he also wrote Acts. And many scholars believe that at this point in the journey, Luke has joined Paul. Uh, he doesn't say so, but he begins to talk in first person at this point for a while. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave from Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them because they felt restrained not to go to this one area. And then at the same time, coincidentally, he sees a vision that tells them to go to this other area. You may be seated. Then go to the map if you would. Okay, I want you to try to orient yourself. Mediterranean Sea, obviously, on your right to the east. That is modern-day Israel, and then Syria above it. Then you see where modern-day Turkey is. Those little lines, they represent the journey that the Apostle Paul took in, in sharing God's story throughout Asia Minor and then ultimately into Europe. I've tried to put two arrows so see if you can find those. At one point on the screen, I would say kind of upper right, northeast on the map, there's an area called Cappadocia. Right under that is one of the red arrows. If you follow that arrow, you go to Tarsus. That's the city the Apostle Paul grew up in. It was an international city. Paul would have grown up speaking Greek, but also knowing Hebrew and Aramaic, at least conversantly and probably very, very well. Just around to the south and east of that area is Antioch, and Antioch was one of the primary cities in the early church. It was the little Christian enclave that actually sent the Apostle Paul out on his journeys. Below that, of course, to the south is the other important city in, in the early Christian movement, Jerusalem. And Paul goes out from there to the west and to the north on his journeys. He gets up to that point about where it says Bithynia, up near the Black Sea. And this is where he wants to go up and share up in that part of the world. And he feels constrained. Just somehow in his spirit, he senses that this is not where God wants him to go. And this is critical for Paul, to sense that whatever it is, is not something that God wants him to do. That becomes determinative for Paul, right? Because if Paul were parachuted into the 21st century in Northern Virginia, Paul would not determine whether or not to take a promotion or whether or not to move out of the town home and, and buy a single family home or whether or not to leave Northern Virginia and go to Dallas. Paul would not make that decision apart from knowing if it was God's direction. And, and he would actually look, and he had grown in his capacity to understand how to interpret his life in such a way that he would know whether or not it was God's will. So he feels constrained not to go up to that direction. And then one night, he has a vision. And he sees a Macedonian man say, hey, Paul, come help us. So they decide to go over to Macedonia. 
and then find the other red arrow. You'll locate the city of Philippi, which is one of the cities that Paul went to to share his story. All right, I'm going to keep reading because what happens in Philippi is utterly fantastic. I'm beginning in verse 11 now. From Troas, we went out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went to Neapolis, and you may have noticed that was the port city really near Philippi. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And a Roman colony would have been critical. Paul was a Roman citizen. And that was unbelievably important in this day and age. It was really difficult to become a Roman citizen. And when you were a Roman citizen in the ancient Roman Empire, that carried more cachet than it carries even to be an American citizen in the world today. The way to become a Roman citizen was to be born in the city of Rome or to serve in the military. If it were not either of those things, then you had to have family or you had to buy your way in or it was difficult to become a Roman citizen. We don't know how, but Paul was a Roman citizen. And he carried that cachet with him everywhere he went. That's important for us to remember for our last point. Philippi was also, as one of the leading cities in this part of the empire, this is the way these things would work. Rome would come into an area, and one of the ways that they would establish the peace of the area is occasionally they would take unruly parts of the population and transplant them. They'd move them to another part of their empire, and in their place, they would replace them with retired Roman soldiers. And some scholars have estimated that there were tens of thousands of retired Roman soldiers living in the city of Philippi. It had become, by the time Paul shows up there, it had become a little Rome, and it certainly thought of itself that way. So he goes to Philippi, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Don't know how or why. We don't know if that was customary in that part of the world or if Paul had somehow in the city heard that there were a group of people that gathered out near the river for prayer on the Sabbath. So Paul goes out to the river. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia a dealer in purple cloth, extraordinary. Lydia must have become something of a leader in the early church. It's extraordinary that she's mentioned. She was a worshiper of God, so she probably was a Jew or she hung around with the Jews. She was familiar with God. She was familiar with Yahweh. And Paul comes in and tells her the story about Jesus and what's happened in Jerusalem. Now, no doubt, they had heard little whisperings and rumors about Jesus already, Paul now gives her the whole story, and Lydia becomes a follower. We, we go on. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. Listen, quick note, this is an aside, not really part of our message, but this is our pattern at Gateway as well. It still is our pattern today. We believe this is the biblical pattern. It, it's not what has happened in all of your lives, but we believe this is the biblical pattern we look for me or you to make a decision about what you want to do with your life. Are you going to invest in this or not? You believe this story or you don't believe this story. Yes, I believe this story. I'm in. And when you make that decision at Gateway, we say, let's get baptized. 
Let's show that. Let's symbolically represent that. It becomes just like a great symbol for us, and sometimes it's actually a remarkably confirming experience for us. We do that literally here at Gateway. For those of you who are new to Gateway, when we built our new building, welcome. This is our new facility. We really like it. Apologies, we still don't know where all those light switches are. But we built into the floor here, we built a, a baptismal pool. So the, under the floorboards here, there's a tank. And once in a while, we've done it once already here at Gateway in the last few months. We'll do it again soon. Once in a while, we'll take these boards up, fill this up with water, and I or someone else will go into that tank, and one of you will come into the tank with me. And I'll say to you, Tom, so glad you're here. Tom will say, you know, I'm not, but thank you, Ed. And Tom will have shared his story with us about why he's decided, you know, I just, I feel like I want to be all in. So Tom comes into the tank, and I say, Tom, do you profess this story? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the director of your life, and and you're in? And Tom will say, yes. And I'll say, then it's my privilege, and I'll use Paul's words from another one of his letters. I'll say, it's my privilege as your brother in Christ to baptize you, and I will literally take Tom and put him all the way under the water, and in Tom's case, I'd hold him under for a long time, and I put him under the water, and I say, buried with Christ in baptism, because that's the imagery, and raised to walk in new life, because we're convinced that's what happens when we make this decision. Something real happens in us that begins the process of making us new. That's why we do this thing when you make that decision. Now, I know some of you come from a tradition where you christen or you baptize infants after a few days, and and there are a lot of traditions that do that. And we honor those traditions, but we do it differently here at Gateway. We encourage you to make this decision when you make that decision. Where was I? I got off track. Open her heart to Paul's message. When she and members of her household were baptized, that's right, that's where I got off. Okay, so when we're baptized, she invited us to her home. She said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house, which is remarkably gracious. And she persuaded us. So Paul's group goes to stay at Lydia's. Once we were going to the place of prayer, so this evidently became their habit, and they must have been spreading the word around, hey, Lydia's telling her friends as she's in the marketplace, she's selling her cloth, hey, I have heard this story. Have you ever heard the rumors of that guy in Jerusalem named Jesus? No. Oh, I have. Listen, y'all need to come hear this guy who, he's a Jew, he's actually he's like a rabbi, but he's a follower of Jesus, and you need to come hear this story because it has changed my heart. Something happened to me. So they're gathering out at the river, Paul's collecting people, maybe on a daily basis, Once we were going to the place of prayer, we met a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. This is weird warning. The story gets weird from here. Just know. Because sometimes, sometimes when God's stuff starts happening, weird stuff happens around it. So she has the spirit in her that she can predict the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, and I don't really get this, honestly. I don't know if this was ridicule. I'm not sure exactly what she was doing, but this woman is following Paul and the entourage that's with Paul, and she's shouting, 
These men are servants of the Most High God. It sounds like a compliment to me, but, you know, evidently this is ridicule. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, one more quick aside. Just know, over the next several weeks of our conversation together, this word saved is the word that, it was one of Paul's most important words throughout the New Testament. It's a really important word. If you grew up in the Bible Belt like I did and grew up in a family that goes to church like mine, you've heard this word saved a lot. Are you saved? It means essentially to have a transformative connection with God, to have made this decision we're going to talk about in a minute, and that decision catapults you into just a new kind of relationship with yourself, relationship with others, relationship with God, a different kind of connection. It's like before you were a mess and you began to realize it, maybe something in your life is showing you right now what a mess you are. You were a mess, and you knew that you needed some way out of that messiness, and here it is. These encounters with God were so profound for them. I've said before that they ransacked the language to look for ways to describe what has happened to them because of this God thing. And one of the images that they came up with that they used most frequently was saved. It was like I was a shipwreck and and I'm saved. So that's the background for this word saved, to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit in the woman, listen to this, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. And this is crazy what happens next. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews, and, and they're, they're throwing our city into an uproar by, by advocating customs unlawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Because they can't say, we've lost our income because of these guys, so they've got to make some accusation that will get them in trouble. The crowds joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods, and they had been severely flogged. They were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And I want you to notice what is not in the text. Nowhere here does Paul say, wait, I'm a Roman citizen. We'll get to that in a minute. When he had received these orders, he put them in the inner cell. Evidently, this is not a good place and fastened their feet in the stocks. So they're in prison in Philippi. This is, again, this is not a good place. About midnight, Paul and Silas were, pay attention and read this with me. Let's just do verse 25 together. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. Wait a minute, stop. They're in the inner cell of a prison in Philippi. (laughs) and they didn't get there because they mugged somebody. So let's start again. About midnight, Paul and Silas, (laughs) that's incredible. Okay, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Don't you wish you could have been with people in subsequent years when Paul is retelling this story? So we're in prison and we're singing, and we're praying, and all of a sudden, coincidentally, there was an earthquake that shook the prison so much that the whole thing fell apart. I'll guarantee you that there were listeners there who were like me, 
who are natural doubters who would say, sure there was. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. So the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because this was going to be what happens to him anyway. He's a guard in a Roman prison. If your prisoners go free, you don't. So he's about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped, but Paul shouted, hey, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. The jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, there's got to be some dialogue here that's happened before this that we don't have, that he's already at this point, and he's heard them praying and singing hymns, and he's so overwhelmed, any, anybody else would have been long gone, but here these guys still are. What to tell me what to do, so I've got some of what you have. They replied, well, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and his household were baptized. Once again, remember, this is our pattern as well. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave and go in peace. But now Paul wants to do something different because he wants to make sure that the opportunity for sharing this message has been maximized. And listen to what happens next. But Paul said to the officers, no, they beat us publicly without a trial even though we are Roman citizens. And now the room gets quiet. Wait, what? Wait, you're you're Roman citizens and we did this to you without a trial. And they threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly. No. They need to come and escort us out of town. Because we don't want our message to be shamed by what happened to us. We want the whole town to see the magistrates walk us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Okay, so five observations about the Apostle Paul from this. Number one, Paul's life is directed by God alone. Paul's life is not directed by profit. Paul's life is not directed by ease. Paul's life is not directed by custom or habit. Paul's life is directed by God alone. Paul does not make his decision based on whether or not this will allow us to remodel the kitchen. Paul's life is directed by God alone. This means he spent his time wondering and praying and thinking about what God would want. What does God want from my life next? He paid attention to the advice of godly friends. He paid attention to dreams and circumstances that seemed to indicate godly direction. 
When Paul wondered about where to go next, the determining factor was God's will. Paul's life is directed by God alone. Second observation, Paul was undeterred by circumstances, especially, let's say, physical circumstances. Paul was undeterred by circumstances. He was not set off course by circumstances. And I want to say, just let's put a little parentheses out here and give a title to this. Now, this one's down the side of the page. This is one of the goals of spiritual growth. So this is an important one. This is one of a couple of moments where we need to say, if you forget everything else, don't miss this. One of the goals of spiritual growth, Paul was undeterred by circumstances. He was in prison when he's in Philippi, right? And not only does this not hamper his ministry, it actually enhances it. And and we're going to later find out when he writes the letter to the Philippian Christians, he's writing the whole letter from prison. He's in Rome in prison. Angela Duckworth is a sociology professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And she claims that numerous studies across many disciplines have come to the exact same conclusion about, check this out, success predictors. So she has personally studied rookie teachers, spelling bee participants in the National Spelling Bee, and new hires at Fortune 500 companies. And evidently, other studies in other areas and other disciplines have have studied lots of other environments. And they've looked at a variety of factors, personal factors and, and training factors, asking the question, what predicts success? Because this would be really great to know in academic settings, This would be great to know if if any of you work in a corporate setting, I'll I'll guarantee you, you, if you're in a management position or your managers or presidents and vice presidents, the executive level of your corporation, it would be critical for you to know what makes someone we hire successful. So they've studied a variety of factors, as I said, including, for example, training and IQ. And we thought for most of the 20th century, American educators thought that IQ was the primary predictor of academic success. That's why we know so much about tracking and analyzing IQ. And they studied all these factors to find out what predicts success. Again, across many different fields, but especially academic fields and professional fields. Listen, they have found that one factor correlates to success far more than any other factor. It's what Angela Duckworth called grit. She defined grit like this, passion and perseverance for long-term goals, having stamina, sticking with your future. Grit is, she says, living life like it's a marathon and not a sprint. Grit, it turns out, is the chief predictor of future success. So there's been an industry explosion in how to identify grit and how to study it, even how to train your children in grit. There's an explosive new study in the field of psychology about how to develop grit in your children. I want to suggest to you Paul had grit, but this is important. What we see in Paul is more than just grit. What we see in Paul, I think, I think we could even say that his grit grows out of his singular focus. What Paul has is spiritual grit. And let's make sure we get the focus. This is what his focus is. Don't miss this. Every circumstance in Paul's life is bent in the direction of declaring God's story. 
Every circumstance in Paul's life, whatever it is, is bent in the service of declaring God's story. Every circumstance is seen through the prism of how can this help me declare God's story to others. He's not looking at his circumstances to help determine who he is or how he feels about himself. So when some really difficult circumstance happens or the whole town turns against him, Paul doesn't suddenly feel bad about himself because Paul's not looking at his circumstances to determine how he feels about it. Imagine how freeing that is. He's not looking to circumstances to provide his contentment. There is no part of the Apostle Paul that feels like if he could only remodel the living room, he'd be happier. Think about how freeing that would be. In fact, Paul will ultimately tell the Philippians later in his letter, I have learned to be content in all circumstances. Again, I said earlier, there's been this explosion of literature in talking about how to help parents train children to be grittier. I want to suggest parents, those of you who are parents of young families, maybe the key is giving them spiritual focus. Maybe the key is living out before them what this kind of life looks like, training them in it and exposing them to it. Maybe that's one of the keys to providing grit. Third observation about the Apostle Paul here is Paul's message speaks of a personal connection to God, and it requires of its hearers that they make a personal decision about that connection. That's convoluted, so I'm going to say it again. But before I say it again, once again, let's highlight this one. This is another big one. So here's the title, I mean the characteristic, I'm going to give it to you here, but over here on the side, what we would write is, this is the starting point for spiritual growth, always. No matter where you are this morning, if you are brand new and this has never been a category for you, I want you to know this is the starting point. If you've been at this for 35 years, this is the starting point. This is the starting point for spiritual growth. I'll explain what I mean. Paul's message speaks of a personal connection to God. That's what he talked about to Lydia and then to the jailer. You need to make a decision. You need to make a personal connection to God. And his message requires its hearers that they make a personal decision about that connection. All right, I want you to see a silly little video. I've shown this before. Some of you have seen this. But it wake us up, and it will give you an inspirational look at what we're talking about here. And then I want to unpack it a bit. But let's look at this video real quickly. Jesus, I have decided to give you this. Really? Yeah. You know whoever sits here makes all the decisions, right? I know, and I'm always making decisions, but you make the perfect decisions, so you just sit right down and start making them. Wow, I'm honored. I mean, this feels great. <laughs> Kathleen, guess what? I just got my new credit card. It's time to go shopping. <laughs> oh, really? I thought your husband and you were going to pay off debt. Oh, yeah. I mean, money's kind of tight, but I figured he doesn't have to know about it. So do you want to oh. go with me? No. <laughs> no? Why? Uh, what I mean is, uh, I don't know. Um, so let me check my schedule, and then I'll get back to you. Okay, yeah, give me a call. Okay. <laughs> Kat, what's going on? What do you mean? Well, I'm kind of one cheek in it here. Look, I just want to make sure we're on the same page. You wanted me to sit here, right? Well, of course. And whoever sits here makes all the decisions? Right. So what's the problem? Uh, there's not a problem. I just, I don't know what I was thinking. Really, please, here, sit down. As long as you're sure. I'm sure. Okay, okay. so let's start over. Okay. All right. Kat, I noticed that you've been losing your temper a lot lately. 
Right. So, okay, Jesus, you know what? I know what you're going to say, but um, see, you, do? you don't know the whole situation, you know? Oh, I, well, all I'm saying is that your attitude is a decision. Yes, of course, but I have a lot going on right now. Well, I know you're under a lot of pressure. Pressure? Jesus, you don't understand pressure, okay? This I, isn't working, Kat. What? We can't both sit on the seat. It's either me or it's you. Okay, I know. You know, I just, I didn't think it was going to be this hard, but here, just take it. No, I'm not going to take it. You have to give it to me. Okay, here. Kathleen, make a choice. I can't. You just did. So this is a big one for us because this is where spiritual life begins. And it's where spiritual growth begins. No matter where we are in the journey, this is where spiritual growth begins. Our personal spiritual growth begins by looking outside ourselves to God. Remember a few years ago, some of you are big Oprah Winfrey fans, and Oprah declared that one year she was on television, her show, that that year was going to be the year of the Spirit. And she spent the entire year on her show encouraging people in the year of the Spirit, and she encouraged people to look within themselves to find more and go deeper and, you know, more courage, more of themselves, and I greatly admire Oprah. But I think she got this one entirely wrong. It is important. It's more than important. It's critical for you to look inside yourselves, for me to look inside myself. The old, the unexamined life is not worth living. It's, it's, it's absolutely critical for you to look inside yourself. But the, the most important step in spiritual growth is a step outward. It doesn't begin by us looking internally. Spiritual growth begins by looking to something beyond ourselves. If you want to do serious remodeling work on your home, you have to start at Home Depot. You can dream, you can plan, you can imagine, you can look at magazines, but you don't have 10 to 15 square feet of bathroom tiles sitting around your house. The real work doesn't begin until you go to Home Depot and pick out the, the bathroom tile, until you go outside of your home for the essential resource that you don't have. The same is true for our spiritual lives. The first step in the spiritual growth is always looking to God. The first step in spiritual growth is always saying, here, you take the stool. Diane and I, Diane is my wife if you're visiting, and Diane and I are watching The Crown on Netflix. I don't know if any of you have seen this, but it's a great television show. And in season two, small spoiler alert, this isn't going to tell you anything, but in season two, and this is, this is a, the real-life drama of the Queen of England and her whole history. And in season two, those of you who've seen it, you'll know, Billy Graham actually appears in The Crown. And he comes to England to do the Billy Graham crusade. And, you know, a lot of the folks around the Queen, both in the royal family and in government, are somewhat critical of Billy Graham but she's intrigued. And so she actually has Billy Graham come and talk to her, have a personal conversation with the queen, just the queen and Billy Graham, a couple of times. She wants to seek some spiritual advice from him, and it's a fascinating episode. Billy Graham spent his entire ministry talking about, listen to this, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Now, I grew up with that kind of language because I grew up in a Bible Belt 
church in the South, as I said. I would hear people regularly talk about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It was kind of shocking to me to discover that language is actually not in the Bible. (laughs) That phrase is never used in the Bible. But it's a perfect description of what we're talking about this morning. It's a perfect description of this aspect of Paul's ministry. And some of you who grew up in a higher church tradition like Episcopalianism or uh, Catholicism, those of you who grew up in Catholic backgrounds, there is a richness and a depth to those traditions, and we want to honor that. And sometimes that's lacking in a tradition like Gateway. Let's just be honest. You know, Ed is up here showing videos of some guy dressed in jeans and calling himself Jesus. You know, we're pretty familiar. We may lose some of the epicness and some of the mystery that I think is important. But I think one of the things that might be lost on the other side of the ledger, so I'm speaking to you if you grew up in that kind of environment, is this. This kind of personal call. That's why for 50 years people responded so powerfully and warmly to Billy Graham's message because that message is critical. It's part of the message that Paul delivers. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? That's the question that Paul spent his life and his ministry throughout Asia Minor and Europe asking people. And by the way, yes, I'm asking you that this morning. This may be foreign talk to you, but it's right and it's biblical and it's the first step in spiritual growth. And by the way, those of you who have been at this a long time, and you made that decision a long time ago, it's still the first step for you. It's still a matter this morning of you saying, yeah, I know, I took it back this week, I'm so sorry, here it is again, it's, I'm sorry, it's yours. I want you to sit there and not me. It begins with a decision, repeatedly. Fourth, we'll be quick, Paul sees fantastic supernatural things happen around his message. Listen. The supernatural stuff that happens, they're never the point. The message is always the point. As I said earlier, this is not a point that he revisits in the the Philippians letter, but it needs to be said because it's so important to the story in Acts 16. Now, if you're one of those people who struggle with the supernatural, as I said, you're just going to feel uncomfortable with the New Testament because God shows up in supernatural ways, and you're going to have to choose to believe it or not believe it. You can do what Thomas Jefferson famously did. You can cut out the parts of the story that are difficult for you and that are hard for you to believe. But if you do that, I just challenge you. I want you to recognize that what you have at that point is not God's story. It's your story. Paul saw crazy things. And he expects that you and I will too. Okay, finally. Fifth, Paul does not exert. He does not demand his own rights except in the service of the gospel. Few of you have heard me say this before, but Jan Zacharias, most of, many of you know Jan. Jan is a friend, and he owns a property in Florida. And at one point a few years ago, Jan allowed me to go down and stay at his property in Florida. And Jan has a relationship with a church down there as well. The pastor Jan is known to the pastor of this church, and it's a large church just outside of Sarasota, Florida. So while I was there, I went to Jan's church, and one of Jan's friends took me to his church. So I go into this church, sit, you know, somewhere in the back, and the pastor has heard I'm going to be there. I don't know how. I don't know if this friend told him or Jan told him, but the pastor comes into the sanctuary that morning, walks down the aisle, sees me, comes over to me, shakes my hand, 
Hello, how are you? Yes, we introductions with one another. My name is Ed, my name is so-and-so. You're in ministry, yeah, hello, hello. Then he says this, where do you live? Where do you pastor? And I said, Northern Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. Oh, he says, I pastored there for over 10 years. Those people are very demanding. If you teach or work in a school or if you are in a service industry in Northern Virginia, you know how demanding you are. Demandingness is not part of the character of the Apostle Paul. What are you doing? I'm a Roman citizen. That never happens until Paul sees that it can benefit the gospel, not when it benefits Paul. Demanding this is not part of his character. And it is so much a part of the soup that you and I are cooked in Monday through Friday, we don't even realize it. All right, let's end. It's early January of a new year. This is a perfect and natural time for us to reflect on bigger things. In fact, we all do it, even those of us who hate resolutions. You can't stop yourself at the turn of the year. And so I want to commend to you this morning, I want to commend to your attention the larger resolution of spiritual growth this year. I want you to think about dialing in. The challenge Paul presents to us in this Acts passage is not a verbal challenge, right? In other words, this isn't Paul teaching us or encouraging us or rebuking us. He's going to do that over the next few weeks. Verbal challenges are important, and we're going to hear it. But the challenge presented to us this morning is the challenge of a personal testimony. In effect, Paul says, this is what I've done with my life. And it's no exaggeration to say that what Paul did with his life changed the course of world history. This is a challenge we would be foolish to ignore. More than that, he outright dares us to follow him into the same territory. He's going to tell the Philippians later in the letter, hey, pay attention, model yourself after me. Follow my example. I haven't presented these observations this morning. I want you to know as an outline for our discussion over the next several weeks. These were just observations related to this passage. But at the same time, if we're going to commit ourselves to spiritual growth this year, there are a couple of things that are critical, and I hope we all do. Then we've got to commit ourselves, first of all, to deciding. That is, we will be examining the claim that God makes on our lives, and we'll decide if we agree and submit or if we disagree. It will begin with a decision. And almost everything that happens hinges on that decision. And we'll commit ourselves to learning how to be directed by God alone. There'll be some lessons for us in the book of Philippians over the next few weeks about this. I'm not saying this is easy, but if we want to grow spiritually, we will commit ourselves to trying to learn how to hear from God and to be directed by Him. That is the essence of spiritual growth for us. We're going to also, third, we're going to recognize the ways in which demandingness inhibits our spiritual growth. We're making it about us or our kids or my home or my yard or my job. Plus, it hurts our relationship with others. We will allow God to show us where that spirit lives in us, and we will allow him to drain it out of us. And finally, we will open ourselves up to the new and profound possibilities of the supernatural. Okay, I'm talking to myself here because, as I said, I'm a natural doubter, but my spiritual growth depends, in part, on my willingness to see God at work in amazing ways. Not only to see it, but to expect it. To come on Sunday morning here at Gateway Community Church, not just because the alarm went off, but because I want to see God do something in me. 
and in the people around me. And we come in expecting it. In the end, we're going to find that our capacity for spiritual growth grows larger and our life is enhanced and we will develop spiritual grit. And we will not be deterred by circumstances. All right, let's commit ourselves to it this year. And let's end by hearing the uh, challenge that poet Mary Oliver issues. I don't agree with a lot lot of what Mary Oliver said, but she got this right. Mary Oliver said at the end of one of her most famous poems, doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Let's pray. Those of us who are able this morning, and, and I mean emotionally able, belief level able, psychologically able, those of us who are able this morning, we decide. For some of us, Lord, it is a first-time decision, and we lean in and we say yes to a personal connection with Jesus Christ. And if we've never made that decision, then this morning, Lord, we say, our best efforts have gotten us here, and it's not where we want to be. We need to be saved. We need a change. We need a profound transformation. So we say yes. And for others of us, Lord, we have struggled so long with grabbing the stool back or jumping back into your lap. Or... And this morning, we want you to hear us and take us seriously because Thursday, when we decide to say no, remember that today we're saying yes. We also, Lord, ask you to move in us, to remove demandingness. Make us people who are directed by you alone, because that's where the best decisions are going to come from anyway. And Father, we pray that you would make us people who have spiritual grit, who live for our future and for your story. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. I'm going to close this with prayer and then bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all the ways that you bless us over and over again and so many ways that we know we don't deserve, but then there are so many other ways where you bless us and we just blow right past it. We're not even aware of it, so we say thank you. And I pray that you would take our offering, our resources, our availability, our hearts, and would you multiply what we're able to give to you? Would you make us more effective? Would you bless what we're able to give for the work of your kingdom? And then I pray this week, Lord, you would let today's message resonate in our hearts and in our minds. Would you keep speaking to us? And we give this coming week to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks so much for coming. Happy New Year, and y'all go in peace.